So now in this new year, this is the first time actually I, 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 I am with you guys uh, in the new year. So I wish all of you in this year that all of our souls will increasingly glorify our God and that we will more than ever taste the goodness of our Lord. And hopefully together and prayerfully that we will continue to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in this new year, I'm going to be starting a new sermon series in which I am very excited to be able to, to share among you all. The objective of this series is for us to take a deeper, much deeper look into Jesus' life, a life, though very short, that changes the course of history and reverses the destiny of mankind. So in the next few months, I'm going to study with all of you the seven signs recorded in the Gospel according to John. Through these explicit and purposeful signs, I hope that we will, we will be able to comprehend much better the divine mission of Jesus the Messiah and how his three years of ministry was necessary to prepare us then and now to understand his work on the cross, which is the destination of all seven signs, uh, the seven signs that point to. But before I would go on to talk about the first sign, turning water into wine, I would take some time to give a brief explanation on what really are signs in the Gospel of John. Well, first, the word sign, it's not John's invention, but an old word that can be traced all the way back to the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. The first time the word sign appears is in chapter 4 of Exodus, when God was calling Moses through the burning bush. Moses asked God to give him some proof of this divine encounter. So, upon Moses' request, God showed him two miracles. If you remember, turning the staff into a snake, and then making his arms leprous, and then restoring it. And after this, God told Moses, If they, the Israelites, will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Well, note that it is the Hebrew word oath, meaning sign or mark, not the word mophate, meaning miracle or wonder. And then in the New Testament, Jesus, no doubt, he has performed many miracles and wonders, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000, calming the storm, walking on water, all the healings and exorcisms, and even raising the dead. All these events are described by Matthew, Mark, and Luke as miracles. In Greek, it's dunamis, or, or the English word is uh, dynamos, uh, dynamite, uh, which means great might. But in the fourth gospel, John purposely uses the word sign. In Greek, it's, it's a, a simion, instead of the word miracles. So in other words, John recorded those events not primarily to show Jesus' might, or how powerful he is, but to give us signs leading up to a bigger picture, a broader meaning of the entire ministry of Jesus, which ultimately was, was accomplished on the cross. 
So in the end of the Gospel, John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the Gospel of John. But these are written, the signs there, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the mission statement of the signs in John's Gospel, or more, the mission statement of the entire Gospel account. John said he did not record everything that Jesus has done. In writing the Gospel, John specifically chose some of the actions that Jesus did and presented them as signs in order to lead us into believing that Jesus is Christ. He is the Messiah. Therefore, when we read a particular sign in John's Gospel, we then need to read into the particular meaning associated with each of them. Miracles are not recorded just to show how mighty, how powerful Jesus is. Think about it. If miracles performed by Jesus only to show Jesus' power, then we might wonder, why did Jesus turn water into wine? I mean, I have no intention to downgrade Jesus' miracle. But, but think about this. How, how marvelous, how grand it is to turn 550 liters of water into wine? I mean, come on, we're not talking about David Copperfield. We are talking about the God who spoke the universe into being. With, with that almighty creative power, God, you just turn water into wine? And that's how you want to prove your power? That seems to me too trivial a miracle relative to God's power. Don't you think so? Why didn't Jesus perform something more stunning, like grander, like turning the sun into marshmallow, or the moon into meatball? Right? Well, okay, it's difficult to feel grand about marshmallow and meatball. I know it. But but you, you, you get the point, don't you? So when the Almighty God chose to turn water into wine, or to feed 5,000, or to heal a sick boy, he did not just want to show his power to amaze us. He has more, much more to tell us. So in order to understand the will of God, as he has revealed through the Bible, we need to really conduct our due diligence into our study. For John's Gospel, we need to pay special attention on the signs he has arranged for us to explore. So, in John, the seven signs are... Well, different people have different definitions of what the seven signs are, but here is mine. First is turning water into wine. Second is clearing the temple. First is healing the son of a royal official. Four, healing the paralytic in Bethsaida. The fifth one, feeding 5,000 the sixth healing the man born blind, and the last one, the seventh, raising Lazarus from dead. When you look at these seven signs, you can tell that not all Jesus' miracles recorded by John are considered signs. At least, walking on the water, on water is not included there. Then we might ask, what constitutes a sign according to John the Apostle? Well, to be a sign in John's Gospel, there are some criteria to make. 
First, John would call the event a sign, either directly or indirectly. Six of the seven on the list are called sign explicitly. While the remaining one, the Jesus clearing the temple, is referred to indirectly. Also, signs are actions of Jesus performed in public setting, especially among non-believers. In John's Gospel, Jesus' three years of public ministry is recorded from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 11. Therefore, all signs are recorded in this section of the book. And signs are not destination. They are merely point towards an ultimate destination, which is the complete manifestation of God's glory in the life of Jesus. So signs point us towards the divinity of Jesus, his relationship with the Father, and the salvation he brings to us. In John's Gospel, it happens so many times that when Jesus revealed a sign, people present will have to make a choice. Either they can choose to follow the sign, believe that Jesus is Messiah and become his disciples, or they can choose to harden their hearts and reject Jesus or worse, to try to destroy him altogether. So signs carry the dual characteristics of grace and judgment. And last but not least, signs are only for symbolic purposes. Signs are not ultimate, uh, the ultimate revelation. Signs only point towards salvation, which is accomplished on the cross. So signs are not salvation in itself. You cannot be saved by believing in the miracle of feeding 5,000. Or believing that Jesus did turn water into wine. You can only be saved by believing that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and he was resurrected in three days. But however, the values of the signs are found in preparing us to embrace, to appreciate the meaning of Jesus' salvation on the cross for us. So now, I hope you have a a little bit of background, a little bit of familiarity of of signs in John's Gospel. Let's start our journey now through these seven signs which will lead us to our destination in the cross. The first sign, recorded in John chapter 2, which accounts for Jesus' first week of his public ministry, shows that Jesus was attending a wedding banquet in a small village named Cana. Then he turned water into wine. Now I'm going to call upon Jesse, Jesse to uh, lead us into reading uh, the scripture, John chapter 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Women, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, when, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here at, in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Thank you, Jesse. Let us all pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you inspire John to record accurately all these scriptures and this specific event in Cana. And we ask that in your mercy and grace, you open our eyes and we live into the reality of your word as never before. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So Jesus turned water into wine in a wedding banquet held in Cana. I'm sure most of us are familiar with this story. A lot of times, the focal point of this story is why Jesus called his mother woman. Then all our apologetic senses are heightened, and we try to defend that Jesus, he was not impolite. Some translations decided to omit the word, the word woman, they omit it, like the New Living Translation. And some translations would go so far to change the word woman to mother, like the message. But these modifications, unfortunately, have obscured the intent of Jesus. Jesus really did call his mother woman. And I'll explain this a little later. In order to understand this first sign, we need to go back in time to the first century Middle East and try to understand the role of wine in a typical Jewish wedding. So in a typical Jewish wedding, wine plays a role to represent joy and celebration, much like a birthday cake in a birthday party, but to a much, much higher degree. In a Jewish wedding, guests are expected to enjoy and have fun as much as they can. So the responsibility of the host is to fulfill all necessary conditions to maximize the enjoyment of all the guests. One of, the, one of the primary conditions is to make sure sufficient food and more essentially wine are provided. Weddings are the biggest occasion in Jewish village. Jews in Jesus' time were very serious about having fun at wedding to the extent that among rabbis they have an exemption rule that all wedding parties, including the bride and groom, their companions, and, and the families, are exempt from certain religious ritual requirements if these requirements would hinder the level of joy, joy of the wedding. For example, fasting is surely exempt at a wedding, like you won't fast when everybody is eating. Also, even the Holy Sabbath, can be exempt as well. Because Sabbath prohibits the lighting up of fire, which then prohibits cooking. Well, unless it's a sashimi banquet. So, so, so you can see how important it is to have fun and enjoy at a Jewish wedding. And in such a background, you can see how important a role that wine plays in the, in the wedding in Cana. In Cana, like Nazareth, is located in the wine-producing belt in, in, in the uh, Galilee region. So no one would have expected to run out of wine in a wedding in Cana. It would be like you run out of Chinese food in Richmond. 
or Victoria Street. In Jesus' time, wine is more diluted than today's wine. The alcohol content is much lower. In a typical seven-day wedding, typical, it's like a cruise, the bartender will mix one portion of wine with two portions of water in the first two days. Then, the proportion of wine to water will decrease as the wedding goes on. And on the seventh, sixth and seventh day, it will be like one portion of wine to four portions of water. And it's understandable because after five days of drinking, everyone would have lost their sense of taste anyway. That's why the host would always try to manage the quality and quantity of the wine so that all guests will be able to enjoy from beginning to the end. If the host failed to do a good job, meaning that he did not control the quality well, or worse, he ran out of wine before the end of the party, then the household of the host, which is likely the groom, will have to suffer public humiliation for years to come. Insufficient supply of wine at a wedding is a devastating social disaster in Jesus' time. This one more important piece of information you need to grasp about wine. In the first century Jewish society, when someone gives you a gift for your wedding, he or she might be allowed to get it back from you in the future under certain circumstances, under special circumstances. Uh, uh, gifts are recoverable for the givers under special circumstances. And special circumstances might include a major financial crisis or the like for the giver. Like you're broke, you can call your friend up and, 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 and hey, I want, I want my gift back. Well, you will find it really weird, right? But this recoverability uh, of gifts was stipulated in the law. Well, for those who gave me gifts at my wedding, even it was a long time ago, don't even think about it. <laughs> well, an exception to, the, to this recoverability rule is when you give wine as a gift. Wine is unrecoverable. In other words, when you give wine as a gift, it belongs to the recipient forever. You cannot get it back. This background will help us better understand the meaning of Jesus giving wine to the bride and groom in this account. In this first sign, Jesus gave the best wine to all the people at the wedding. This amazing gift of grace is not subject to reclaim. It belongs to us forever. How sweet that sounds. Another scripture says, when the wine was Gone, uh, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now you have to think about how Mary said this line, they have no more wine. She did not say it, oh, they have no more wine. She was saying, they have no more wine. First, we need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus' mother was not sitting with Jesus in the same table at the wedding. She wasn't just having a casual chat with Jesus and said, hey, look, they ran out of wine. That's not what actually happened. In the first century, men and women would not eat in the same table. Or more precisely, they would not eat in the same area 
in a banquet. Men's table are placed in more prominent positions, while women's are placed closer to the kitchen. It's because women tend to be helpers at the kitchen. And in this account, Jesus' mother was obviously a kitchen helper, or even a lead helper, given the fact that she can command the attendants later in the story. So when the wine is about to run out, the first group who would realize this issue must be the kitchen helpers. They know so well that this would turn out to be a social disaster for the host. Therefore, the cry for help must have come out from the kitchen. And it's very likely to be a woman. Mary came to find Jesus because she needs help desperately. She came to ask her son, Jesus, to help resolve this imminent disaster. Then Jesus responded to Mary. He said, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus gave a short line of response which consists of three parts. But unfortunately, each part is increasingly difficult to understand. What what did Jesus mean? Did he want to do it? Did he want to do the miracle or, or did he not want to do it? Okay, first, let's take a look of why Jesus called her, his mother woman. I would make an educated guess that no one here have ever called your mom woman. I mean, don't start to call your mom woman when you go home tonight and thinking that you're following Jesus' footsteps. No, no, no. The way Jesus called Mary was not something we can copy. Now let's see why Jesus said that. First, is that the word woman is not a title of disgrace of any sort. Jesus called female woman a lot of times, multiple times. And calling a female woman is an acceptable and courteous social term in Jesus' time. However, even though it is not rude to call a female woman, It is definitely awkward to call one's mother woman. No one in Jesus' time would call his or her mother woman. It's because when you call your mother woman, even though it's not rude, it represents distance. A close, intimate relationship becomes an arm's length relationship. This title, woman, has widened the distance of a mother-son relationship. So even though Jesus was not rude to Mary, he intended to keep a distance from Mary upon Mary's request. Why? Well, for all of us, for all other people, mother-son relationship is always purely mother-son relationship. Or unless you're employed by your mother, or vice versa. But for Mary... And Jesus is never just purely mother-son relationship, but also sinner and saviour relationship. None of us is the saviour of our mother or the God of our mother. But Jesus is different. When Mary approached Jesus to resolve the problem of wine being run out, Mary was indeed asking a resolution only God can answer. There's no 24-hour liquor store at that time. Therefore, when Mary told Jesus, they have no more wine, Jesus then was not merely a human son to Mary. He is also God, a miracle-performing God. 
But unfortunately to Mary, she, she was probably confused with the different roles of Jesus. That's why at Mary's request for a miracle, Jesus redefines their relationship by calling her a distant title, woman. No one can go about Jesus to make him do anything. Even his earthly mother cannot do it, as Jesus is always the sovereign Lord. You get that? Okay. Alright, following. Okay, then Jesus continued to say, Why do you involve me? This is worse than women, because this sounds quite unsympathetic. Well, before we draw into conclusion, we need to acknowledge the fact that this line, why do you want to involve me, has already appeared a few times in the Old Testament. The one that resembles Jesus saying the most was spoken by prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 3, when the king of Israel, oops, where am I? Oops. Oops, here. Yeah, okay. When the king of Israel came to seek help from the prophet, Elisha said to him, Why do you want to involve me? In that context, Elisha was asking the king of Israel, What what my role as a prophet has to do with your problem? Now, coming back to Jesus' situation with Mary, he is essentially saying, What my role as the Savior, as the Messiah, has to do with your problem or their problem of running out of wine. Obviously, Jesus being the Messiah, his purpose of becoming one of us, and his power uh, of his divine nature, are not supposed to be used in solving our material problems. Mary, calling into the divine nature of Jesus, has mistakenly asked him to solve her problem of earthly matters. As a result, Jesus replied Mary using his divine status, and thus he said, Woman, what does running out of water have anything to do with my mission as the Savior of the world? Jesus' mission is to save all mankind from our sins, not from running out of wine. And this can only be, this solving the ultimate problem of sin can only be accomplished on the cross, not in Cana. And that's why Jesus continued to say, My hour has not yet come. Your hour? What does it mean by your hour, Jesus? The phrase was repeatedly used by John in his gospel. In chapter 7, verse 6 and 8, Jesus decided to stay in Galilee and not go to Jerusalem because the leaders there wanted to kill him. Jesus understood that his time has not come yet. So at the end, he only made it to Jerusalem secretly. Then, in the end of chapter 7, even though the leaders in Jerusalem uh, wanted to kill Jesus, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Then, in chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. No one sees him. Because his hour had not yet come. But when we reach chapter 12, verse 23, when it's only a few days to his crucifixion, Jesus finally said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then immediately in verse uh, 13, 1, 
During the Last Supper, it says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. So obviously, the hour refers to the time when Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, being crucified on the cross. That's why at the wedding banquet in Cana, when Mary was calling upon Jesus' divine nature, Jesus said that the hour of my divine mission has not yet come. So, when the hour has not yet come, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus, although he, 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 he's not going to show his complete glory, which would be reserved for the cross, he decided to give us a sign in order to prepare us when the hour eventually arrives. Therefore, Jesus has transformed Mary's mistaken request into a sign that points towards his ultimate glory on the cross. So now we may ask, how does the sign of turning water into wine help us understand the divine mission of Jesus the Messiah? Well, the scripture continues to give us necessary information. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then the master of the banquet tasted the wine and he approached the groom and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Making the best of what's available to him on the spot, Jesus turned not just wine into not just water into wine, but turned the six stone jars from their legal and ceremonial use for purification to jars that contain the best ever wine humans ever tasted. Verse 6 is the one verse that we tend to ignore, but it actually serves as the key to unlock the meaning of this sign. What the sign wants to reveal is that Jesus the Messiah did not ignore or demolish the stone jars whose purpose was to fulfill the law. However, he gave it a new purpose. Rather than being used to fulfill the law, now they are used to carry the wine that brings people joy. This change of use is very significant. Those stone jars were, were required by the law to be installed for purification purpose. They represent the law brought to Israel by Moses. The law was supposed to be good and gracious, but the law was in itself the means to God's grace, not the end. The Jews, sadly, had turned the laws from being the means to being the end. They have twisted the spirit of the law and the religion had become rigid and ungracious. Law has become the suppression of life. For on Sabbath is forbidden to heal the sick. And for preventing from uncleanness, it's better to ignore the critically injured lying on the, on the road, etc. In Judaism, in Jesus' time, Grace can no longer be found in the system. Gospel can no longer be found, and even God's will, God's good will, can no longer be found in the system. Jesus came to restore the law which had been distorted 
by the Jewish leaders such as the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus came to fulfill the law's original intent. In, in fact, John the Apostle has indicated that the, this purpose of Jesus right at the beginning of the Gospel. In chapter 1, verse 16, 17, John said, Out of his Jesus' fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Law given through Moses was the grace already given. And then grace and truth, grace in fullness, came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring grace into its fullness. But before Jesus came, grace was already given. Such grace came into being from the law when it was presented to Moses on Mount Sinai. Then from the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus, grace has achieved its fullness. The first sign of Jesus in John's Gospel calls us to make a few reflections on our own. First, is our spiritual life, our own spiritual life, becoming more and more rigid? Our church life, our coming to church, is it becoming more and more like the end than the means? When people come to, into our lives, when people come to face us, will they find grace in our lives? Will they see the marvelous work of God? Will they hear the gospel in our lives? How about us as a church, as a community? Is our church culture becoming more and more rigid or dogmatic? When unbelievers come in our midst, will they find grace here? Will they experience the good news here in our particular church culture? And in addition to the rigidity of our faith, this sign also points us to a very important reality. That is, Jesus represents the fullness of grace given to us. I am convinced, even though when my faith is weak, that I have to force myself to be convinced, that we do not need to seek grace and blessings outside Jesus himself. When we try to seek additional grace and blessings outside Jesus, we will surely end up in more anxiety and dissatisfaction. This sign is trying to tell us that grace given to us on the cross by Jesus is all that we need to sustain anything in life. Jesus, as John pointed out, is the manifestation of God's grace in its fullness. That's why Jesus asked us to remember the grace of God through the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is called Eucharist. Can you see the word? You like it. It's called Eucharist in Greek. Although the word Eucharist means gratefulness, this word actually consists of two words, which is you and charis. In Greek, you means good. And charis means grace. Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, means good grace. Or grace in its fullness. Eucharist, the bread and cup that represent the body and blood of Jesus, is good grace. It's grace in its fullness. Brothers and sisters, are we seeking grace from where they, that will never satisfy us? Are we seeking grace and blessings from where that will only deepen our emptiness? 
be assured by the word of God that in Jesus we will find grace in His fullness. You know, the, the evil one will always try to tempt us to find grace and blessings elsewhere. So be smart, be wise, we must, that we insist on going to Jesus. The signs pointing us to Jesus and on the cross, His grace is always sufficient. Let us all pray together. Dear gracious and loving God, we ask in your mercy and grace that your Spirit will do His marvelous work in our hearts so that we would wholeheartedly trust that the grace in Jesus is sufficient to sustain us in any life circumstance. Help us to have faith, to believe and obey your word for only your self-expression in the Bible could lead us into the fullness of life. Also, Father, help us to be a living sign of today that our lives, as we live it, will point people towards the cross, the only and one salvation that all mankind needs. Please, Lord, for we pray in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus. Amen.